And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emeralds, even Ashdod and the coast thereof. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines unto them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be carried about unto Gath. And they carried the ark of the God of Israel about thither. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. 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 Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And if you couldn't guess by that opening, obviously we're going to be talking about the Ark of the Covenant today. Robert, I think it was when I came back from Thanksgiving break that you were like, we're doing the Ark of the Covenant (laughs) on the show. And I was like, what the heck are you talking about? Now, you know I'm always up for an exploration of some kind of weird ancient artifact Mm -hmm. or something like that. So so we're, we're good to go. But why did you want to talk about the Ark on this show, Robert. Well, it's like nothing we've gone after before, Joe. Obviously. <laughs> um, no, the, the Ark is, I guess it basically comes down to the Ark has long fascinated me. I, mm-hmm. I grew up watching uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones movie. I had it on VHS and I would sit there and watch segments of it in slow motion. Pretty much every special effect in the film mm-hmm. I would watch in slow motion from the melting of Nazis to just, uh, you know, more practical stuff as well. Uh, and you, like, sit your parents down and your grandparents into a frame-by-frame face-melting analysis. <laughs> that sort of thing, yeah. It just, it, it always fascinated me. And then if you're setting in church, and I grew up uh, attending church, you you pick up the the Bible and you flip around and you look at uh, – you read the interesting passages and certainly the passages about the Ark of the Covenant are some of the more fascinating. Uh, they, there's just, there's just, they just resonate with mystery and you're like, what is this about? And so I, I feel like throughout my life, I have come back to it and uh, in each time I've, I've looked at it with new eyes mm-hmm. and more recently I've been thinking – uh, you know what? Uh, what are some scientific uh, possible scientific explanations, even if they're a bit fringy in places, mm-hmm. uh, regarding the ark? Surely they exist, and uh, lo and behold, 
They do. Well, the way that the art connects to a lot of scientific topics is very interesting. Generally, it tends to connect to them in kind of, uh, yeah, like you say, fringy, often kind of like uh, pseudo pseudoscientific kind mm-hmm. of ways, but gives you a good mysterious uh, jumping off point to talk about real science. So, yeah, we want to talk about the myth today. We want to talk about some weird fringe and pseudoscience beliefs people have had about the arc and how that connects to weird mm-hmm. ideas about ancient technology, to talk about real science and technology potential in the ancient world. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, I have to admit, as much as I love uh, the discussion module, our mm-hmm. Facebook group that is associated with Stuff to Blow Your Mind, I actually uh, checked in with the Movie Crushers. This is the group associated with Chuck Bryant's Movie Crush podcast uh-huh. because I was curious what, is, what, it was, what it is like, A, to have never seen uh, Raiders of the, of the Lost Ark and also what it is like to have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark but with some sort of underlying understanding, preexisting understanding of the Ark of the Covenant because – I can relate to, to to neither of those. Like the Ark of the, the Covenant as it's revealed in Raiders of the Lost Ark has pretty much always been there in my life. Essentially, Raiders is a book of the Bible. In a you. way, yeah, yeah, really. I saw that and then later on I learned how to read uh-huh. and came back and, uh, and learned uh, what the Bible had to say about it. But, you know, in Sunday school, we just never got the Emirods. I don't know why they left the yeah. Emirods out. I would have loved that when I was seven. Well, we'll get to, we'll get to this, but I think one of the, the issues, of course, is translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some translations, they're referred to as tumors. Uh, yeah. I think that's where I encountered it the first time, and I was like, whoa, back up. The Ark of the Covenant is giving the enemies of God tumors, uh-huh. uh, and that's one. That's one of the, this was post Raiders, but then I was, but then I was like, oh, well, I'm really hooked now. Like it, this is e- this is even more, uh, you know, eldritch horror heaped upon the the mystery of the Ark. It makes you want to imagine an alternate universe in which Raiders of the Lost Ark was not made by Spielberg and Lucas, but was made by David Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. And so when they open the Ark, it's kind of like the tumor gun from Videodrome. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that again, that's one of the things about about the, the Ark of the covenant is, is it's just so weird and we're going to keep touching in on that weirdness and we're also going to keep referring to raiders of the lost ark throughout this episode uh because this episode more than anything uh that we've covered before gives us just free license to talk about that movie ad nauseum yeah there's a lot of fascinating stuff just in the original ark mythology but the the indiana jones treatment of the story partially merges it with something kind of like pandora's box mm-hmm. like it becomes just a container of unknown and unutterable mystery where there isn't quite so much that feeling in the Bible stories, though it is a a strange and sacred object of profound power. Now, two of the big questions that are generally mulled over concerning the Ark. uh, First of all, what was it? And then secondly, where is it now? Now, we're mostly going to ruminate over the first question because the second is one of those questions that tends to lead to one of two places. Either the fact that it's simply lost to history, likely destroyed in some prior age or or hidden away and lost. Assuming that there was such an right. object. And that's the other possibility is that it simply did not exist. Yeah. Um, or it leads one to various speculative or even downright conspiracy theories involving, you know, the Knights Templars perhaps. <laughs> right. Uh, or there's the notion that it's it's currently hidden out of sight in the chapel of the tablet in northern Ethiopia, which is possible, but there's no, no proof. Or that it was taken to heaven, uh, an answer that requires more of a speculative leap than the notion that the Ark, like so many treasures of history, simply failed to survive history. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the main things that we're going to be exploring in this uh, look at the Ark is that the Ark of the Covenant is yet another one of these ancient stories, these objects of ancient myth – 
which there have been great efforts by modern writers to ground the myth in what we now know about science and technology, mm-hmm. reimagining what the ancients believed to be magic as some kind of lost, powerful science or technology. And we've discussed before some of the risks of technologizing the myth. Uh, it's not necessarily always wrong, but it's an impulse that's not al- – it's also not always justified. There's a sort of naive way of reading ancient texts that says, OK, let's take what they say happened basically at face value but posit a different explanation for it than they would have. And while this can be a fun exercise, I love doing it. I personally enjoy it. We should always remember not to start feeling like this is a necessary and especially not like it's a parsimonious exercise Mm -hmm. when in reality – Ancient histories of all kinds, religious texts, myths, and so forth are likely to be full of narratives that are the result of creative imagination and things like exaggeration across time and retellings. In other words, there's no event that you necessarily have to explain because the events described in these ancient stories often just didn't take place. Right. We can't treat a description of the Ark in uh, in the Old Testament as being the same as, say, uh, you know, a fossil evidence or a, or a crater. Right. Right. We, we just don't know. I mean, the, it might be based on something that actually mm-hmm. happened, but we don't know. But if we take the route of saying, well, okay, if these stories are based on something people saw or based on something that actually happened, when we look at history that way, ancient history with a bit of science under the belt, there is this insatiable itch, the the retro sci-fi hermeneutic, which I've been looking for a concise name for. And I think I just realized the perfect one for for this era of that, which I'm gonna I'm gonna start calling bronze punk. Yeah. So you've got good. yeah, you've got steampunk for the Victorian era, you've got atom punk for the atomic age, and I think we should have bronze punk as the name for this <laughs> retroactive technologizing of the time period of classical civilizations in the ancient Near East, including the Hebrew Bible and its contemporary civilizations and texts. So with those important caveats, I think we should begin a bronze punk adventure into the oh, arc. Oh, man. Bronze, bronze punk does have a lot of, uh, of, uh, of opportunity here. It gives us a chance to bring back uh, – uh, Talos, the uh, the bronze uh, automaton. Oh, that's a classic example. Yeah. Would, would Talos, I think that'd be bronze punk. I don't want to be too rigid about the time period that applies <laughs> to either because a lot of the stuff we're talking about here I think would technically be bridging Bronze Age and Iron Age in the regions that are affected. But all that aside. Yeah, anything, it doesn't need to stand in the way of Talos battling the Ark of the Covenant is what I'm saying. <laughs> Well, before we get into all these uh, supposed uh, bronze punk explanations of what the Ark might have been if it existed and if some of the stories about it are based on things people saw, we we should just explore the myth. Like what is the story of the Ark and what do the texts say about it? All right. Yeah. Well, we're talking here about uh, the Aaron Haberet, the Ark of God, the Ark of Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. Just a few names that are used to uh, describe it here. Uh, A gold-plated wooden chest used by the ancient Hebrews to house the two stone tablets of law given to Moses by God. Uh, And it was also said to contain a couple of other holy relics, such as Aaron's rod, a magical item used by Moses' brother, as well as a pot of manna, the supernatural foodstuff that fell from the heavens to feed the Israelites in the desert. Now, in addition to being made of gold, uh, two, uh, the other decorative element that is uh, a signature of the art are the two uh, cherubim that are depicted atop it. Now, I'm not quite sure why this has happened, but in modern English usage, cherubs or cherubim, that has come to mean naked baby angels yes. like you would see on those cards or the creepy little statues people put on their dressers. 
but, but cherubim are not naked, cute baby angels, right? Right. Even though, we, like, if we describe something as bearing cherubic today, mm. we're, we're, we're describing, so, oh, it's got, it's like a baby with fat cheeks, or maybe an adult yeah. with a fat, with fat cheeks and kind of a baby's face. But really, it should be a horrifying adjective uh, to, to heap on something. It should mean that it is a, an, a, an, an object or personification of just holy wrath. Right. Classical example would be angel stationed outside the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword to keep people out. That's right. I mean, that that is a cherub, that true cherub. Forget the the Renaissance uh, uh, art here. They're, they're kind of like God's supernatural heavies. <laughs> uh, but as with any sort of mythological creature, you, you do see a lot of variety in the way they're depicted, ranging indeed from uh, the bestial to the more humanoid. Uh, depictions of the art tend to favor a, a, a version of, of winged humanoids. Uh, but we could and perhaps we should do a, an, ep- an entire episode on angels and religious traditions in the future because there's so much uh, fascinating material there. So we're talking about creatures that would have been first or second circle in the hierarchy of angels. And their descriptions uh, include or tend to include the form of a lion, the form of a man, the form of an eagle, or any hybrid of these forms. I've actually seen uh, it described that they sometimes are representatives having four faces. Yes. And the four, the four faces would include the lion to represent the beasts of the wild, the, the man to represent the world of humans. I think an oxen face to represent the mm-hmm. world of domesticated animals and then uh, an eagle face to represent the world of birds, which I guess are somehow different than wild animals. Yeah, these depictions uh, of, of the cherubs often look kind of like emblems, right, with like mm-hmm. folds of multiple wings and haloed heads of these uh, creatures and a human poking out. Now, according to Carol Rose, uh, a folklorist who I, I frequently cite on the show um, in her book, Spirits, Fairies, Leprechauns, and Goblins, an Encyclopedia, Hebrew religious writings state that images of cherubim guarded the Ark of the Covenant as well as Solomon's temple. And they're divine messengers, attending spirits, and disseminators of knowledge. Now, it's possible, uh, Rose points out, that cherubim are derived from the uh, Assyrian Lamassu or Sidu, And these were the female and male, respectively, uh, benevolent demons in ancient Assyria and Babylon. They would have protected palaces and temples, and they were often depicted as winged bulls or lions with human heads. And they mostly remained invisible and were assigned in the manner of guardian angels to protect an individual human from the evil uh, Utuku. There are some amazing carvings of these in the Met, in the Metropolitan yes. Museum mm-hmm. of Art, I believe from the palace of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal II, or maybe not the palace, but I think commissioned by that king. And they are fearsome and wonderful to behold. Yes, they are. And uh, to come back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, these are, of course, uh, presumably the, uh, the, the entities we see flying around after the Nazis open the Ark of the Covenant at the end of the film. Oh, the cherubim? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, because at first they look like, uh, like women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sort of beautiful ghost women. And then, of course, the face changes and it becomes this kind of snarling, skeletal lion type face. And then, of course, uh, it's death for all who uh, view the Ark. Now, for, a, for an artifact that has come to be imbued with so much mystery uh, retrospectively, 
the the Bible actually does just straightforwardly explain how to build the ark. It's yes. like minute <laughs> specifications on what you're supposed to do to make one. Yeah, it also it, it it almost makes you wonder like what's the big deal about losing it because clearly you have you have a, a, st- a strict set of instructions on how to build another one. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I mean, I, I think there were just like magical beliefs about the sacredness of what it contained. Oh well, yes, certainly. Yeah. But that, but that ultimately is the thing, right? The ark is a container, a yeah. fancy container, uh, perhaps even a holy container if you're approaching with that worldview, but just a container for other otherwise uh, uh, holy relics. That is one thing that I think makes it very fascinating and kind of unique. And there are probably some other great artifacts like this, but fascinating in that it is a, a, this artifact with all this significance, but it is essentially just a vessel for other things. It's a container. It's not a statue. Well, should we read the instructions from Exodus 25 in case anyone wants to build along as we as – we, uh... Do the podcast? Let's build it. All right. Um, get your, your cubit ruler ready. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it." Now, I want to jump in here and say, let's say that this is exactly the kind of description of the Ark that is disappointing when you're a child yeah. and you've seen Raiders and then you want to read about it in the Bible uh-huh. and you just find this this kind of boring description of how to build one. Oh, there are better stories. We yeah. got the Emirates. We're going to get to some more later. Well, this this description do, is about to get a lot uh, more interesting and certainly mm-hmm. will tie into some stuff we're going to discuss later. And thou shalt put into the Ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. So in other words, make the two cherubs face each other on the ends of the mercy seat. But leave a space because that space is important. Okay. Anyway, it continues. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Okay, so this thing is a container, as we've been saying, but Mm -hmm. it's also a chair. And it's a chair for God himself. Right. The idea is that that mercy seat is where... God is going to manifest, uh, it sounds, uh, from the instructions. Like there is mm-hmm. going to be a presence of the Lord there. And uh, and Moses uh, and perhaps you know some other priests, uh, whoever is, is in charge, whoever is authorized to do so, will actually commune with God. It is, in the words of Belloc, 
a radio for speaking to God, a transmitter. Uh, but it's really more like a video phone <laughs> than than just a transmitter, right? Yeah, it's like FaceTime with yeah. God. You know, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll discuss the story of the Ark, because that too will be important as we get into some of these uh, scientific ideas regarding the Ark. All right, we're back. All right, so if the Ark was actually built, about when do we think that would have happened? It would have been about 3,000 years ago. Now, we've seen the instructions in the Bible where they believed God had sent his people, uh, you know, the detailed plans on how to make the Ark. But what do they do with it once they've got it? Well, after they've, they've built it, they carry it around with them and they use it as the central part of their religious observations. I mean, it's essentially a mobile altar piece, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a temple that you can pick up and move. And so th- think back again to that part about the mercy seat. This is the point from which God speaks to the children of Israel. And uh, if Raiders is any indication, it's also from whence he sends out his smiting laser beams of holy Nazi frying death. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the wording here is interesting because it is the, uh, and I'm, I'm possibly uh, butchering this, of course, but the uh, ha kaparet, well, and kafer, that's kaparet, K-A-P-H-A-R means to cover, but kapareth means a thing of wiping out or cleansing. Hmm. So they carried it before them when uh, during the Exodus, and it was uh, said to clear uh, impediments and poisonous animals in their path. And it was uh, even said to stop the flow of the River Jordan so that they could cross into the Promised Land. But it was also conceived of as a kind of a magical weapon of war, right? Yeah, they marched with it uh, at the siege of Jericho. Uh, of course, they, you know, they were blowing those trumpets, but still the ark was there. And as they're blowing those trumpets, uh, eventually the walls come tumbling down. But then in 597 and 596 BC, the Babylonian Empire conquered the Israelites and uh, the ark was supposedly taken from the temple in Jerusalem and from there, it vanishes from history. So if it did indeed exist as, uh, as to some degree as the stories are told, this is where it stops. We don't know what happens after this. Right. This is, this is where yeah, it becomes the lost ark. Now, as with any Bible artifact of any significance, I would bet that there are some people out there who claim to have found it. Yes. And, but, but before we, we touch on those, I do want to point out uh, just a wonderful uh, fragment of a quote here. came to, came to us from uh, National Geographic Society fellow Fred uh, Hybert. Uh, he told the website, National Geographic, that it's not ne- really something that you can go after. You can't really search for the Ark because the Ark exists at, quote, the crossroads between myth and reality. Yeah. And I think that's that's Im- essential to keep in mind uh, for the, in- the entirety of this episode and the next. Well, I would say, for example, I think the Ark probably has a better chance of being – in some way based on a real historical artifact than something like Noah's Ark. Right. But people constantly go looking for Noah's Ark, and every time they go looking, they find it. You know, they <laughs> say, well, here's some wood on a mountain in Turkey. Here it is. Right, and likewise, the Ark is, a simply, is essentially just wood and gold uh-huh. uh, and is, not, is even less of a feat to build. Like, we have the instructions. You could, if you had the materials, you could build one today. Mm-hmm. So even if we were to uncover an Ark candidate, it's not really possible to tell, though, if you have the Ark of the Covenant. Right. I mean, yeah, it, there could probably be multiple Arks yeah. out there saying that they're the Ark. Yeah, I mean, there and there have been cases where, the, where archaeologists have found something that is like an Ark, a box that uh, has perhaps excited a few people here and there, but ultimately, uh, you know, it doesn't pan out. 
I mean, I, I suppose if you had a strong candidate, you could do carbon dating on the uh, on the relic, perhaps the the wood, uh, especially if there are any remnants mm-hmm. of the wood remaining, to at least know if it's old enough. Yeah, to know if it's it's old enough. But eh, again, it could just be another box from that time period. That being said, uh, some of the possible final resting places for the Ark include, uh, as I already, uh, already alluded to, St. Mary of uh, Zion Cathedral in Aksum, Ethiopia, under the care of the Ethiopian Orthodox uh, Tuahedo Church, and more specifically, under the care of a single caretaker who alone gets to see the Ark. Mm-hmm. Naturally, that means no one gets to verify uh, what they actually have or don't have, much less study it. Some claim that it was hidden beneath the first temple in Jerusalem before the Babylonians destroyed it in 586 BCE, but this can't be verified either because that means it would be somewhere beneath the Dome of the Rock Shrine, which of course is a holy site in Islam. Now there's another claim mentioned in that Nat Geo article uh, that I cited earlier that it was buried beneath a hill, and not just any hill, but the very hill that would later be known as Golgotha, the place of the skull. Right, which is the place where it is said that Jesus was crucified. Right, and according to this story, when he's crucified, his blood like drains down into the hill and eventually uh, to the ark itself buried beneath him. Mm-hmm. And uh, this relates to a quote-unquote find of amateur adventurer Ron Wyatt, who lived 1933 through 1999, who claimed to have found, among other things, Noah's Ark, the Ark uh, of the Covenant, the Tower of Babel, the graves of Noah and his wife, as well as the blood of Christ itself. Needless (laughs) to say, one should take his account uh, with all the salt that Wyatt claimed to have also discovered at the ruins of Sodom. Uh Uh, Yeah, he was— not a, a, a true archaeologist. Now, this guy is not unique in essentially being um, somebody who is uh, an apologist for their religion who goes out. I mean, I mainly know of this within within Christian, mm-hmm. you know, like somebody who's basically a Christian apologist, a defender of the faith who goes out seeking artifacts that has always struck me as a kind of odd thing to want to do. I guess I get it on the level of these are people who are trying to prove that the Bible is literally true and everything, all the stories in it literally happened on earth a certain number of years ago. But it, it seems like kind of a, a, a profaning of, the, yeah. of the, the orientation toward their myths if they're going out and saying like, I'm going to find the bones of this person who's the, you know, in the stories that I believe, or I'm going to find the, the wood left over from the boat. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can approach it from a few different points of view. I mean, I always the way I always approach it is that that the uh, you know the, the deep mythology of a given faith need not be factual to have power, mm-hmm. and uh, and therefore there's no reason to go and try and find fragments of it or expect them to be there. Be there. Uh, you could, I guess, approach it as someone who needs to find those items mm-hmm. because that again supports their religion perhaps erases doubt. If only I could find a piece of the ark, then I'd know it was real and I can silence these doubts. The other way of looking at it, of course, is someone who has no doubts whatsoever and they're like, hey, the ark was obviously real. Uh-huh. Um, I got to prove it to everybody else. Yeah, I need to prove it to everybody else or I just I just want to find it. It's out there somewhere. Why has nobody found it? I'm going to be the one to do it. And to your point, but- if you go into this re- these regions – there is just so much history that especially somebody who's just bumbling around and they don't really know what they're doing, 
they're going to find something that they can pass off, oh, that they, they can believe in. I don't know. They end up being kind of like the villains in all the Indiana Jones movies who want to possess some powerful, mysterious ancient artifact, but they want to possess it for some earthly purpose. Like, you know, <laughs> then I can show everybody this thing or something. It's sort of the moral of Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end that Indy, Indy loses his his sort of uh, profane curiosity and he realizes I can just let this thing be sacred and not have to look inside and not have to want to own it and control it and show the world. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's a, a, a solid read on Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, while we're talking about Raiders, uh, let's let's go ahead and uh, and discuss a few of the details about it because I'm – I'm assuming most people have seen Raiders, but I know there are some individuals out there who just haven't seen the film yet. Uh, and, and I certainly encourage everyone to see it because it is a, a, a damn near perfect uh, motion picture. Is there a better action-adventure movie? I can't think of one. I mean, you could you could say Star Wars, right? You could yeah. point to other Maybe big Seven films. Samurai. Yeah, know. things of that nature. But, in, but I mean, it's such a tentpole film in terms of like big summer action films. It is the film that so many other motion pictures have, have tried to be. This, of course, was a film that came out in 1981, directed by Steven Spielberg, screenplay by Lawrence Kasdan, story by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman. Uh, Philip Kaufman, by the way, is, uh, is the, the person who uh, uh, reportedly uh, brought up the idea of using the arc in the story. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, he was also the grandson of uh, German-Jewish immigrants to the U.S. Spielberg's parental grandparents were Jewish-Ukrainians. Uh, so I, one would assume that, the, 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 that this played into the, the use of the Ark in the film, but also some of these themes uh, uh, regarding uh, the, you know, the struggle of uh, the Jewish people against oppression. Yeah, well, one of the unspoken subtexts to the film, I think, is that ultimately the Ark ends up fulfilling its destiny as the weapon that protects the Jewish people. In the end, it's, it's destroying Nazis. Right, and it's recreating a tale that we'll touch on in a bit, the idea that the Ark is stolen by an enemy force – and then uses its power against uh, that enemy force. Yeah, it's sort of a retelling of the of the Emerod story almost. Yeah. Uh, I should also point out that uh, John Williams did the score for the film. And I'm usually I'm, – I'm kind of over John Williams scores for the most part. I don't but, know what you're talking about, dude. <laughs> How can you not love John Williams? Well, the thing is in, in re-watching portions of this film for this episode, I, I still – I have to give him all the credit in the world because mm. – it, that that the scene when they finally open the ark and the the ark unleashes its um, its wrath upon the Nazis, the music is perfect in that. It just really adds to the sense of just holy mystery uh, that is unfolding there. Uh, take take any movie with the John Williams score and take the score out, replace it with something else. You wouldn't have half the movie. But what if it was Tangerine Dream? <laughs> then it, I, I, I can only imagine it, it might be just a little better. Maybe. Well, I love Tangerine Dream too, but you're wrong about this one. <laughs> well, maybe so. Uh, now, key scenes in the film for our purposes, uh, because there's a lot of stuff in there that is, of course, added on and uh, um, you know, historically inaccurate, certainly. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, but there are a few key scenes that, uh, that that match up with a lot of the stuff we're talking about here today. There's a scene in which the Ark burns the swastika off of the crate containing the Ark. And then, of course, there's that fabulous scene at the end where the Nazis open the ark uh, and those cherubim emerge. And then you also have the burning light of God finally emerging as well and uh, just eradicating everybody that has their eyes open. And the idea of a fire that burns people emerging from the ark is absolutely biblical. And we'll explore uh, more of those stories later on. Now, a side question that I saw come up on the internet 
Does Indy actually impact the situation with the Ark and the Nazis at all? Because outside of saving Marion's uh, life, uh, Marion, uh, uh, the, the, the romantic interest, does he accomplish anything? No, and I think that's the genius of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. The movie ends with with Indy. It doesn't. It's an action movie that doesn't end with a fist fight. Right. There's no fight of any kind at the end. the The hero of the movie at the end is completely powerless, and his victory at the end is assuming a posture of humility in the presence of the sacred. Yeah, totally. Because to remind everybody, at the end, he and Marion are tied up. Yeah, the Nazis have the Ark. And uh, and Belloc is opening it in mm-hmm. the in, in full regalia. In fact, wearing uh, some version of the vestments that are described uh, in, uh, alongside the instructions for the con- uh, for the construction of the ark. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the ark just murders all of the bad guys. Yeah. And uh, and Harrison Ford uh, is left to pick up the pieces. Okay, we can't just fully turn this into a movie crush episode. <laughs> no. We've got to. <laughs> Get back to so we should probably get into exploring some of the weird scientific tangents people have uh, gotten into on the subject of the arc, and one of them that you can clearly look at is the idea of the Emirates and what happened with the Ark in the presence of the Philistines, if you assume this story is based on any kind of historical memory or even an exaggerated version of something that people remembered. Right. Yeah, because this is getting to, to one of my favorite things about the Ark, the idea that it brings plague and or madness to those who should not possess it, mm-hmm. that it is a, a dangerous artifact. So should we explore the idea of the Ark as a sort of bioweapon? Yeah, let's talk about uh, the Ark as plague bearer. I just want to remind everybody that previous passage that we read, and it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction, and he smote the men of the city, both small and great, and they had emeralds in their secret parts. Now, let's talk about those emeralds. So those emeralds uh, are often interpreted as hemorrhoids. Okay. That would there, – there seems to be a, a cognate yes. issue there. And a lot seems to have been written about them over the years mm. in part because it seems like anytime you have a hemorrhoid paper. Oh, God, yes. Uh, and, and there are a lot of hemorrhoid papers out there. The, the, uh, the doctors writing them often like to throw in a little bit of biblical flavor at the beginning. You yes. Know? How many times has this story been cited in the International Journal of Hemorrhoid Research? Right. Yeah. Right at the very beginning of any paper because you're ultimately just going to talk about uh, you know, swollen veins in the lower part of the rectum and anus. Now, but can, if you can make it a little magical right at the <laughs> start. You're going to hook readers. Right. So for people who don't actually know, can you just briefly explain what a hemorrhoid is? Yeah, it is swollen veins in the lower part of the rectum and anus. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. That's all it is. Yeah, the basic. I mean, you can get more detailed in des- describing what causes them and, of course, mm-hmm. the, the treatments uh, that, that are necessary. But it's been a problem for a long time. Obviously, something that may have been described here in the Bible uh, – and just throughout human history, people have had to deal with hemorrhoids. Now, if the story actually does mean that the Philistines got hemorrhoids, I know it's been translated in other ways, but mm-hmm. if it did mean that, would the story be best interpreted as something that's supposed to be humorous? Is it like a joke on the Philistines? Uh, you know, this comes down – oh, man, it, you, you kind of end up asking a big question about humor there, right? Yeah. Uh, because I I don't think hemorrhoids are ever humorous to the individual that has them. Right. But clearly we have a lot of jokes about hemorrhoids. It's in our really culture. funny when your enemies get one. I guess. I mean, it's 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 kind of a, an insulting uh, curse from uh, a powerful god figure, right? Right. It's not just like 
causing them to go blind or something. It's giving them this this annoying health problem. And then there's this other part uh, to it as well. So the Philistines suffer these after they steal it and they locked it up in the Temple of Dagon. And we see the the, 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 the statue of Dagon fall over multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Ark, of course, not only mutilated their, their god statue, it also caused uh, these, uh, these emeralds as well as a plague of rampaging mice. Hmm. The emeralds, again, are also sometimes referred to as tumors. So – a lot of people have have looked at, at these examples and tried to figure out well what could possibly be going on here because if these uh, the, these emeralds be they hemorrhoids or some sort of a tumor well that's that's a symptom that's something we can look look to that we can analyze uh, via modern medicine and then maybe we can look to some of these other elements and try and piece something together as well now just to be clear once again we mentioned this earlier but we don't we don't have direct evidence that this story actually happened we right. we, we don't know that this is based on something that people remembered, but it could be. It could be based on some kind of historical event. Right. And likewise, a lot of a lot of work has been done looking at, okay, we had we had emeralds and we had mice. What's the connection there? Yeah. But in reality, you could have two separate stories that end up being combined into a story that has emeralds and mice. Mm-hmm. So as I said, a number of, of people have written about this. Uh, two of the earlier ones were 19th century historians Gaston Maspero and Archibald Henry Sace, who summarized that, quote, the Philistine soothsayer, being consulted at the end of seven months, ordered that the solemn sacrifices should be offered up and the ark restored to its rightful worshippers, accompanied by expiatory offerings of five gold mice and five gold tumors, one for each of the repentant cities. Hmm. So they're not only saying, here, take your ark back because it is causing mice to be everywhere and has given us some weird growths. They're saying, here it is back, but also... Uh, here's here's some golden mice and some golden hemorrhoids or or tumors or something uh, to sort of as payment or perhaps warning to whoever, whoever gets the ark next. Now I don't want to get too far ahead of things here, but I can't help but notice if you've got mice and you've got uh, tumors or lumps of some kind, I'm going to start thinking about bubonic plague. That's right, because bubonic plague does result in buboes which are swellings of the lymph nodes. So that could sort of be classed as something like a tumor. You get a lump under your skin. Right. And if you, if you want to do a Google search, you can find images of these, uh, these swellings. And indeed, they look kind of like, like lumpy tumor-like growths. Frank R. Freeman, in a 2005 Royal Society of Medicine article, highlighted some, uh, some other writings on the topic, including a 2000 argument by J.P. Griffin that it was, in fact, plague that was uh, uh, afflicting uh, the Philistines here. But then one WMS Russell uh, insisted that the tumors were emeroids due to uh, dysentery and that, quote, the rat carrier of the plague wasn't in the region at the time of the described events, but that, quote, since then advances in archaeology have shifted the weight of evidence towards Griffin. Moreover, the emeroids of the King James Bible appear in all modern translations as tumors. So if you're just trying, really trying to make it work as hemorrhoids, you're probably out of luck. Right. It seems like like, like tumors are a more likely um, uh, interpretation. And that leads uh, a number of people to say, well, maybe it was, uh, it was bubonic plague. Here's another quote from Freeman. Recent archaeological evidence has caused a rethinking of plague in the ancient Near East. Fossilized remains of the plague flea have been found in large numbers in Amarna, Egypt, and since Amarna was occupied for only a few years, we can date this contact between human beings and plague fleas accurately to about 1350 BCE, which is before the events described in the book of Samuel. 
Moreover, archaeological studies in the Nile Valley indicate that R. Ratus was in, introduced at this time, probably via ships from India. Evidence of bubonic plague has not been seen in Egyptian mummies, but all the vectors were in place. Okay, so this is saying based on some evidence we have there, the historical setting is is there. Like you could imagine that there could be bubonic plague at the right time in the right place for this to be what is what is described in the story about the Ark and the Philistines. Right. That being said, I don't think anybody's arguing that the Ark was full of plague-infested mice. Right. This would just be a situation where the the soothsayers made sort of a connection between plague uh, mice and uh, the illness, but instead of connecting those two things together, they just assumed they were both curses of the Ark. Mm -hmm. Now, in a minute, I do want to come back and discuss the possibility of bio-warfare and germ warfare in the ancient world. Yes. Now, now, before we get to that, I do, I do want to also mention that uh, one Dr. Otto Neustadter in 1940 considered that the swellings described here might be possible. It might possibly be due to syphilitic infection, which okay. means that the Philistines would have contracted syphilis from the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, or, or again, that an outbreak of syphilis lined up with the presence of the Ark or was attributed to the presence of the, of the Ark in some fashion. Is there anything that syphilis doesn't explain? But I mean, yeah, if, if we, we go back to, to our earlier discussions of syphilis on this, uh, this podcast. It, it seems like you can pretty much describe just about everything. Uh, if, the only thing is you probably get into a, 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 an argument about when syphilis would have impacted a given region. No, by that, I, I didn't mean that syphilis is a good explanation for everything. I just meant that people have tried it on everything. It's, you know, like a, it's every been a powerful um, force in, in human history, for sure. Every historical event has a syphilis hypothesis. <laughs> As will come up repeatedly in this episode, it's not necessary to invoke bronze punk biowarfare explanations to justify Legends of the Ark, but it is certainly, I think, plausible – that forms of biological warfare were practiced in the ancient world that who knows that the ancient uh, – the ancient Hebrews or, or any of the other peoples of the time period could have figured out how to do germ warfare and could have used it. And in fact, we have some pretty interesting evidence that it did actually happen at least in one case uh, in the second millennium BCE. That's right. Uh, we're talking about uh, the Hittites of Asia Minor going back to what, 1500 BCE? Yeah, around then. So I think the 14th century BCE. So uh, there was an epidemic at the time in the 14th century BCE known to historians as the Hittite Plague that spread throughout the Middle East. And historical records of this pestilence appear in correspondence stellae to the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten from around 1335 BCE. And they say that there's a horrible plague that spread throughout the land. It's affecting some Phoenician cities and there was a fear that it was being spread by donkeys, which led to them barring people from infected cities, from coming into uh, other cities and from preventing donkeys from being used in traveling caravans. And so there is a paper I wanted to talk about published in Medical Hypotheses in 2007 by a microbiologist named Ciro Igino Trevisanato called The Hittite Plague, An Epidemic of Tularemia and the First Record of Biological Warfare. And this is a really interesting hypothesis. So Trevisano believes that the evidence indicates that the Hittite Plague was in fact an epidemic of tularemia, which is a bacterial infection caused by by the bacterium Francisella tularensis. Uh, 
Tularemia can spread between animals and humans, so it's a potentially zoonotic infection, uh, and it can spread via several routes, including tick bites and by just direct contact or inhalation of infected aerosols. It has different symptoms depending on the route of transmission, including high fever and ulcers and swelling of the lymph glands. And the pneumonic version of this infection leads to a cough, chest pain, difficulty breathing, and can definitely be deadly. Tularemia is actually often known to kill off large numbers of rabbits, which has led to it being commonly known as rabbit fever. And especially without modern medical intervention, primarily antibiotics, it can be fatal to humans. So it is a deadly, dangerous disease. Trevis Senado says that after the outbreak of this plague hit the Phoenician city of Symira, the Hittites, also known as the Neshites, attacked the area and looted it. So you've got the city weakened by disease. The Hittites say, hey, some free stuff. So they run in, they attack the city, and they loot it, taking along livestock among the many spoils of war. But soon after they returned, the Hittite raiders were hit with an outbreak of disease that Trevisanato uh, also thinks was tularemia. And this would make sense because they brought the livestock. The animal hosts were arcs, if you will, for the hmm. bacteria. Then, while the Hittites were weakened with this epidemic, another people known as the Arzawans attacked them. Then Trevisanato writes that there are historical records that indicate strange incidents in when like wandering rams appeared in Arzawa. And the Arzawans, of course, uh, wouldn't pass up free livestock, so they incorporated these rams into their flocks. But then they were hit with the disease, probably tularemia. Mm. And Trevisanato also mentions a story that there was this Arzawan leader called Uhazidus who was struck by a divine thunderbolt in the knee, huh. disabling him, quote, a rule are infected with the plague and symptoms thereof being observed in the knees or in a region euphemistically and or puritanically described as the knees fit the metaphor. Oh, this is the idea where like if an individual is wounded in the in the groin, they describe yeah. it as the knee instead. Or like the foot. Like okay. the, often in the Bible, the use of the word foot is clearly a euphemism for the genitals. Okay. So here's Trevis Sonato's hypothesis. It's that the Hittites, who had experience with this epidemic, deliberately planted disease-carrying rams among their enemies in order to deliberately spread the rabbit fever, the tularemia, and weaken those enemies. And if that's true, it seems like it worked. The, the Arzawans were unable to defeat the Hittites after the fever hit them. And we've got historical records that the Hittite king wished plague upon the Arzawans and that there was this Hittite scapegoat ritual in which a ram and a female attendant were sent out on the road spreading disease where they went. Oh, wow. So we don't have direct evidence that the Hittites knew exactly what they were doing, you know, that they knew they were spreading disease or that they understood how the spread of disease was happening. So while the evidence for this is very interesting, I would not say it's a proven case of germ warfare and that it doesn't seem like this has become accepted theory about what happened in this case. But it does seem like a, a very promising hypothesis. Uh, but despite not having a germ theory of disease, I think it's certainly feasible that ancient peoples could work out Basic principles of epidemic transmission, such as that infected or maybe cursed animals mm -hmm. would spread the disease to people they came in contact with. And using this basic knowledge, it's possible that ancient peoples could have deliberately spread diseases among their enemies. And it's clear that later armies with not much more scientific understanding than the ancient peoples had did this. 
Yeah, indeed. I mean, two of the the the, the most uh, probably famous examples of this would be throwing dead things, be they animals or soldiers, uh, over the walls into a besieged city, mm-hmm. or throwing that kind of stuff down a well to try and destroy, uh, poison uh, uh, an enemy's drinking water. Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to mention a few examples that are cited in a paper called "The History of Biological Warfare" by Friedrich uh, Frischnecht, and this these would all be before the germ theory of disease. But he mentions that in eleven 55, uh, Emperor Barbarossa poisons water wells with human bodies in Italy. In 1346, the Mongols catapulted bodies of plague victims over the city walls of Kaffa in the Crimea, Crimean Peninsula. And in 1495, the Spanish mixed wine with blood of leprosy patients to sell to their French enemies Ooh, in Naples. That's quite a cocktail. So while I would absolutely say that we do not need to resort to explanations like this to explain the origins of these stories, at the same time, I think it's fascinating and highly plausible that there could have been cases where ancient peoples used biological or germ-based weapons to hurt their enemies. Like you can imagine a vessel or a container as some kind of biological Trojan horse Mm -hmm. tricking enemies into taking home some disease vector with them. What if you you get people to steal your ark and it's actually a box full of rabbit corpses covered in tularemia ticks? Yeah, I just I would have assumed they'd look inside it before they take it home. I mean, that just seems like like, uh, that's just common sense. Well, maybe you make a crafty one with like some hidden... You know, containers on the compartments. stuff on the yeah hidden compartments with grates for the ticks to get out. You yeah. can you can get really creative with this. So there are no instructions about that, though, in, in the biblical account. It's true there are not. Uh, I'm again, but I'm not saying that this actually happened and explains the story. I don't think you need to go there. <laughs> All right, we're going to take one more break, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit about radiation and uh, the idea of the ark being indeed a radio for talking to God. All right, we're back. So I, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, the influence of fiction on uh, our, our considerations of the Ark. And I definitely remember being, I guess this was like junior high, reading Stephen King's The Stand mm-hmm. and then also uh, looking around in the Bible and thinking about the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. There's, of course, this this wonderful sequence uh, throughout uh, the later portions of Stephen King's The Stand in which, uh, what was his name? Do you remember this character? Which character? The character who's dragging the the atomic bomb across the Trash can man. Trash can man, yes. Donald Merwin Elbert. Ah, that's good. Do you remember his whole name? Yeah. I just remember him just being like the melty bomb guy. Yes. Because he's just just ravaged by radiation sickness and mutation. He's just, his skin's basically dripping off his body as he drags this... uh, this bomb into the the final scene of the entire book. Well, based on a kind of Atomic Age monster movie understanding of how radioactivity works, you could certainly imagine uh, somebody looking at the story of, oh, the, you know, they took this this thing killed people and sometime at one point people took it and they got tumors. This must be radioactive. Maybe it's a plutonium bomb. Yeah, it sounds like something right out of a Fallout game or a Planet yeah. of the Apes movie, right? Yeah. Um, but of course, we we can't really seriously consider any explanation that involves a, an ancient atomic weapon. No, there's just no explanation for why that would have occurred. Right. I think the use of uh, germ warfare among the ancients, even though they might not have had a germ theory of disease, I do think it's plausible given what they could have figured out just based on experience. I it is not plausible at all that they. I mean, 
not even close that they came up with any kind of highly radioactive materials. Right. Because, the, of course, the, the other side of the, the equation is, hey, we have naturally occurring radioactive materials. Perhaps they just dug that stuff up and stuffed the ark full of it. Uh, because, I mean, certainly you, there are – you have sites like Ramsar, Iran – uh, that that have uh, a lot of uh, of naturally occurring uh, radioactive uh, materials there, but they still don't produce anything near the high level doses required to cause radiation sickness. Yeah, digging uranium out of the ground, even it's not going to be anything like that. Mm-hmm. The highly radioactive elements we would find in like nuclear reactor fuel or nuclear weapons exist only in extremely tiny trace amounts naturally, and to produce significant amounts of something like uranium two thirty five or plutonium two thirty nine, you have to subject naturally occurring rocks containing mostly more stable elements like uranium-238 to some kind of process, right? You've got Mm -hmm. to like bombard it with neutrons in a reactor or you've got to centrifuge it to separate out the more dangerous U-235. The greatest natural terrestrial source of human exposure to ionizing radiation seems to be radon gas. Radon is one of the radioactive decay products of uranium along with other elements like radium and thorium. And I just haven't found any evidence of a natural terrestrial radiation source strong enough to cause acute or noticeable radiation poisoning within a short span of time. Exposure to natural terrestrial radiation sources can be dangerous, for example, radon gas, but this is more because it tends to increase something like your risk of cancer over Mm -hmm. long periods of time. Uh, For example, radon gas is believed to be the number one cause of lung cancer among non-smokers. And uh, the number two cause of lung cancer overall. So even the most potent natural radiation sources, they're not going to do anything to you that you could detect, I think, without modern science. So I find it extremely unlikely that anybody in the ancient world could have an acutely lethal radiation source in a box. I think we got to rule that one out. Take that, junior high Robert Lamb. <laughs> I'm sorry. Dude. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. no, no. He had it coming. Well, now you made me feel like a jerk. No, no, no. This is um, this is a this is not at all. I mean, I, this was something I was curious uh, about when I was in junior high, mm-hmm. and then later on you get to look into it and realize, ah, well, that didn't really pan out. Now I do want to mention something that I think we should come back and explore in a future episode which is the idea of natural nuclear reactors. Hmm. I don't believe any exist today, but there is evidence that billions of years ago, long ago in Earth's history, when the uh, when the elements in Earth's crust were younger, there were some natural fission reactions that were sustained within rocks in in rock formations within the Earth's crust. Like at a, I know at at least one site in Western Africa, there are these two billion year old natural fission reactors that we found all this evidence of mm. that there was essentially a nuclear fission reactor happening naturally under Earth's crust. And that's led to even these really strange hypotheses, like alternative hypotheses for the origin of the moon, which say that it was uh, the result of a natural fission reaction explosion in Earth's crust billions of years ago, which uh, I know that is not a favored hypothesis, but it has been put forward. (laughs) I believe this was also the underlying science in the, uh, the more recent American Godzilla film. Oh, wait, what? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Like the idea was that Godzilla is this ancient organism from back when you had uh, naturally occurring high levels of radiation on Earth and that they ate radiation. Okay. And that's their their whole reason for being gigantic uh, radiation spewing monsters. Nice. What's the – I don't think they get into – the one I've seen recently is Shin Godzilla, which is 
absolutely oh, yeah, amazing, but they don't really explore the origin, do they? I don't no, recall. I don't think they do. They're more they're hyper concerned with the present. Yes. That sense. How do we react to this? What do we have legal authority to do? Where to hold the meeting? Yeah, that sort of thing. Uh, so those are both really fun movies in their 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 own right. So at this point, let's let's come back to again that that fabulous quote from Belloc in Raiders <laughs> okay. of the Lost Ark. It's a transmitter, a radio for speaking to God. Okay. That's a little more then, uh, Peter Lorre, but, you know, you in, give the idea. The more earthly indie says, you want to talk to God, we'll go see him together right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's a fun moment in the film. But the, the idea is central to the whole purpose of the Ark, as we've discussed uh, already. It's described as not only a place to house sacred relics, but as a focus of ritual, an altar of sorts, a mobile altar. God manifests upon the mercy seat and speaks to the priests, instructing uh, the priests of God's will. Okay, so if this is uh, how they believed the Ark to function in their worship, what are the ways you could interpret this? Well, I think the most likely explanation of all would be that it just would simply serve as a focal point of devotion Mm -hmm. in the same way that any altar, any statue or religious work of art does so without the need for supernatural occurrences or ancient, you know, technological devices or weird traps or what have you. No bells and whistles required. Uh, You know, I also can't help but compare it to the notion of a focal point or a, a drishti in yoga. Hmm. And this is where you're, you're not even looking necessarily at anything in particular. Maybe you're looking at a, a, you know, a line on the wall mm-hmm. or just a, a, a point in space and you're focusing your attention on that. And in doing so, hopefully entering some sort of meditative state. Right. The goal is to, to center consciousness, to crowd out uh, – other thoughts entering. Right. And I imagine a lot of our listeners out there, you've had that experience either by focusing on nothing, focusing on, say, a clock on a wall or a wall socket, or perhaps some bit of religious art, uh, you know, an altarpiece, a cross, uh, what have you, uh, uh, you know, various uh, Hindu iconography as well. Like these can serve as just a way to to focus our mind and and also think about perhaps what is illustrated in the work itself. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, all ultimately uh, very much a form of induction or a formally ritualized procedure whose function is the narrowing of consciousness by focusing attention. I also can't help but think that with a golden item like the like the ark, you, mm-hmm. so you have the ark. It's covered in gold. Right. You have it in a like a dark pavilion. And uh, what kind of illumination do you have around you? Well, you might have uh, burning sacrifices. So mm-hmm. there, uh, indoors, you generally probably have firelight, but mm-hmm. you could also have a, a sacrifice burning at the altar that would be a sort of like a, a fire there. And I have to think also that there there would generally be smoke in this environment. You'd be yeah. like burning something in sensors. So you have you have you probably have smoke. You have some some firelight of some sort. Mm-hmm. You have this gleaming golden artifact, uh, not even getting into the, 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 the cherubim that are on it. But it seems like that the, the light would play off of it in curious ways. The, the smoke would add to the mystique. It sounds like an environment that is generous to the creation of altered states of consciousness. Exactly. Again, with no drugs or, uh, or magical interpretations required. Yeah, exactly. Now, I know some of you out there that have listened to the show for a while are probably thinking at this point, well, what about the bicameral mind? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, because clearly this the whole time— favorite. Yeah, because this whole time we've been talking about a way of speaking to God, a way of hearing God's voice, right? So it, it, it seems like it would naturally be a part of all that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, first of all, let's just refresh about the bicameral mind and the idea of bicameral hallucinations. Uh, in The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, Julian Jaynes, uh, the late Julian Jaynes, argued that ancient humans heard hallucinated voices and that human consciousness as we know it today began roughly 3,000 years ago as a cultural invention, which of course would kind of line up with the the, the time frame that we're talking about here with the ARC. Mm -hmm. It's an unproven hypothesis and uh, we've discussed some objections to it in the in past episodes, but it remains possible that at least some aspect of it is correct. In a way, it's a very safe kind of idea for Jaynes to have proposed because there was and remains no real way of proving or disproving it. Right. You can't prove it because it's in history, but I, I do think it's subject to undermining by evidence. Yes. I mean, like one of the things that I think uh, would help undermine it is if you can just find more and more ancient examples of people demonstrating inner consciousness in ancient literature. Right. Uh, I mean, like he, he he pointed to some examples of ancient literature and said, oh, they're remarkably devoid of the idea of an inner inner voice or inner thoughts. So I think one pretty easy way of saying, no, he was probably wrong is just to look at ancient texts that do show signs of of consciousness and, and inner inner monologue. And then also he was very open about the fact that he, he basically just looked at Western and uh, classical examples, mm. uh, classical literature, classical architecture for evidence of the bicameral mind. He didn't really look at Eastern examples uh, because he did not speak the language. Now, you mentioned, and we've said this before, that it's it's one of these ideas that is probably wrong but really interesting and could be correct in some ways, mm -hmm. like some sub parts of the, the, the hypothesis could have something to them. I think that I've been convinced that Jaynes is probably wrong about his model of consciousness, where consciousness came from and all that. Uh, very likely wrong there, but could very well be right about the idea that ancient religions involved much more visions and hallucinations than modern religions do. I think that that's entirely plausible and there's a lot of about reading at least about ancient religious practices that seems to indicate that that maybe is true. Yeah, because there is there is a lot of listening to the voices of the gods, seeking the voices of the gods, and I mean, we still see it reflected in our in, in hymns and uh, prayers that are said every day, asking to hear some voice, even though we do not hear the voice. The voice does not actually speak to us in our minds. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think even if the the main part of his hypothesis, the idea of, uh, you know, the, the development of consciousness in these different stages, if that's completely wrong, he could have been on, on the right track looking at all these ancient examples of the uh, almost ubiquitous religious visions and hallucinations in ancient worship. Right. Now um – James's ultimate argument was that modern consciousness was a learned development uh, tied to metaphorical language and that uh, and that this change wouldn't have occurred all at once then. It would have been something that spread. Yeah. And it wouldn't have affected like everybody within a, in, like a given town at once. It wouldn't be like everybody, oh, you got the, the, the new consciousness shot. All right, mm -hmm. we're all good to go. You would have had a lot of confusion, uh, a lot of, uh, of chaos. The voices of the gods, they grow fainter, but then they can be reached again via various practices. Like essentially it was becoming harder to hallucinate. Right. 
Now, Jaynes uh, did mention the Ark specifically in his original book. He said, quote, poetry then was divine knowledge. And after the breakdown of the bicameral mind, poetry was the sound and tenor of authorization. Poetry commanded where prose could only ask. It felt good. In the wanderings of the Hebrews after the exodus from Egypt, it was the sacred shrine that was carried before the multitude and followed by the people. But it was also the poetry of Moses that determined when they would start and when stop, where they would go and where stay. And this is, of course, referring to the fact that that Moses would speak to through the ark. It authorized his decision-making. So Jaynes didn't really get into the arc all that much in the book or in other papers of his that I've seen. It's possible I'm missing something because I haven't read everything that Jaynes wrote. Uh, but I, I did run across some uh, uh, s- some writings by Brian J. McVeigh, a scholar of Asia specializing in Japan. And he uh, also studied under Julian Jaynes as a graduate student. And he discussed uh, this a bit in his paper, Biblical Evidence of Bicameral Mentality, Vestiges of Super-Religiosity in the Old Testament. Hmm. He discussed how the art could have functioned as a, an object of hallucinatory focus, or OHF, and a portable one at that, uh, for the ancient Hebrews as they wandered the desert and wandered out of the bicameral mindset. So uh, th- this is his quote from the paper where he's describing what an OHF is. Quote, hallucinatory aids, broadcast instructions, commandments, warnings, speaking idols, living statues, effigies treated as if alive, fed, paraded, taken on journeys and into battles. These emitted holy power and authorized decision making. In some cases, portable OHF were used, uh, an example being the Israelites' Ark of the Covenant. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, again, as I said a minute ago, you you don't really have to accept the uh, the bicameral framework for for consciousness and the the origin of these hallucinations in order to think. Well, maybe that there there are just physical objects that aid the mind in having religious visions or religious experiences, much in the in the the uh, like in the example of induction, like we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier, with the object of focus in say uh, Hindu or Buddhist meditation. Yeah, exactly. The, the bicameral explanation uh, is fascinating as it is. Mm-hmm. It's not completely necessary for understanding why uh, individuals would carry around a sacred item, carry it into battle, and uh, and also use it in their rituals. Isn't it so interesting the way religions around the world, uh, so many of them have what you might call scene setting. All these uh, – all this paraphernalia, the like different clothing – different sights and smells, physical objects to hold or be in the presence of, to look at, smoke, uh, you know, uh, washing of the body, like all these different things that are in order to get you into a different mind state than you are the rest of your life. You're out walking around, getting your groceries, going to work, doing your stuff. But when you enter a religious space, you have to go through a process and surround yourself with things that put you in a different state of mind. And this seems to be core to to not every version of religion around the world, but a whole lot of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, if it's not a particular icon or representation, because certainly there are religions that um, 
that frown upon that, mm-hmm. depicting uh, individuals or deities, et cetera. Yeah. Th- there still is often like an, uh, a focus on architecture or space. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like in Islam, you're exactly. generally yeah. not going to have representative art, but you do have a lot of attention to the creation of a sacred feeling environment. Uh, you know, the interior architecture of many mosques around the world is is beautiful and it puts you in a different mind state. All right. Well, hopefully we've put everybody in a different mind state today as we discussed the Ark of the Covenant. And hey, here's the fun part. We're not done. There's going to be another episode on the Ark of the Covenant looking at a a particular idea, the idea that, okay, what if the Ark of the Covenant was a machine? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to give a spoiler. We don't think it was a machine, but that does lead us down some other interesting paths that that will be a lot of fun to explore. Right. In the meantime, you can check out all the episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find them all. That's where you'll find links out uh, to uh, our social media accounts, uh, including that discussion module page that I mentioned earlier. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody about the Ark of the Covenant, uh, your thoughts on it, crazy theories you've uh, read about it, uh, your thoughts on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, all of it is fair game. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to uh, say hi, let us know where you listen from, to suggest a topic for the future, you can always do that at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.